Scotland. The year is 1744. In the heart of Edinburgh sits the first church built in the city after the Reformation, Greyfriars Kirk. Surrounded by an allegedly haunted graveyard, the small parish church is spooked by the dead. Its ministers are dying young. Life expectancy in Britain is barely 30 years, and a growing number of the minister's widows and children are left penniless and without a home. Enter Alexander Webster, a writer and minister of the Church of Scotland, and his fellow clergyman Robert Wallace, the founder of a renowned debating club, which from all accounts means mostly drinking. These two men, who share a proclivity for statistics and probabilities with their libations, have an idea to address the problem of the widows. The idea is a fund, but no ordinary fund. Rather than merely having ministers pay an annual premium to a pool of money that would be used to take care of widows and orphans, Wallace and Webster believe that premiums can be used for a fund that can be invested profitably. Two hard-drinking ministers have an idea for a bold money-making scheme. Sounds like the setup to a joke. In reality, it's the story of the creation of the first pension fund founded on data and real mortality rates. Wallace and Webster came up with a first-of-its-kind projection of how many beneficiaries that fund would have decades later and how much money could be generated to support them. The pair of clergymen laid a foundation that would hold strong for centuries to come. Life expectancies, risk analysis, how to provide for future generations. The issues they grappled with are no different from the ones facing pension systems today. Now, that brilliant invention of theirs is facing perilous times and undoubtedly its greatest challenges. But as we've learned over the course of this series, with great challenges also come great opportunities. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to understand the history of how we got here. I'm Paddy Hirsch, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGIM that untangles the origins, present-day opportunities, and future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, with the help of PGIM's Howard Noel, author and journalist Roger Lowenstein, and Antonio Sanchez of the European Systemic Risk Board, I'll be telling the story of the evolution of pension schemes. We'll trace their origins and examine their current predicament to understand their future possibilities. Pensions. They've long stood for security and peace of mind, but they have their origins in daring and risk-taking. Today, pension fund assets, including defined contribution plans, total more than $50 trillion across the world. But a population that's living longer means ever-growing uncertainty for pension systems, public and private. We'll look at the pensions landscape through a global lens, drawing lessons from the US and the UK and Europe, investigating the issues facing the various defined benefit and defined contribution plans across countries and what they can learn from each other. With factors from the pandemic to low interest rates to an ageing population, what will that landscape look like going forward? To some, the word pension may conjure up an image of someone with grey hair and a walking stick, which could make it hard for someone without grey hair to think that pensions could be relevant to them, or at least not without a few shots of whatever Wallace and Webster were throwing back. The term pension is an issue. I think people should think of them as savings plans with some legislative or tax planning around them. It's a pot of money, and that's how they should think of it. That's Howard Noel a managing director of PGM's Institutional Relationship Group in London. You know, we have to acknowledge that more money, 
more of our personal money has to go into these tax efficient and flexible vehicles that have been established for our benefit. For decades now, Howard has been thinking and talking about retirement savings, explaining their importance to rooms full of people, or sometimes not so full. Back when I was doing pension presentations to employers in groups of 100 or so, and this was before people had PowerPoint and before animated presentations. And I think the trickiest thing is to to get people in the room and to deliver the message around the pensions at their level and make it relevant to them. Retirement savings are, of course, incredibly relevant to everyone. Even though they vary across the world, they have the same fundamental principles, face the same daunting problems, and can learn from each other. To understand how, we need to understand how pensions became relevant in the first place. The general concept of pensions is simple enough, but the motivations behind them have always been complicated. The word is coming from pensio, that means a payment in the Latin. That's Antonio Sanchez, lead economist of the European Systemic Risk Board, which oversees the financial system of the European Union. And just to be clear, the views that Antonio expresses in this episode are entirely his own, not those of the ESRB. Antonio traces the origins of the concept of pensione back, very far back. It was some time of the empire, in the Roman times, that they were first used in the army. That's right, the Roman Empire. The days of Augustus Caesar, a mighty ruler who, it turns out, was a bit paranoid. And considering the fate of his great-uncle Julius Caesar, perhaps he should have been. Augustus worried that retired soldiers might rise up against him. And in 13 BC, he came up with a way to ensure he wouldn't end up in a pool of his own blood. He would pay those soldiers off. When a soldier of a certain rank was too old to be part of the army, he was given a piece of land where he could have a farm and to spend the last days of his life there. So then it evolved into a payment in coins. So he was given like a lump sum for the rest of his life. Augustus Caesar wasn't offering pensions as a grandly magnanimous gesture. He did it, shocker, out of his own interests. And so too did Otto von Bismarck who made Germany the first country to adopt a national pension programme in the 1800s. Anyone over 65 years old would be forced to retire, but all retirees would receive a pension. This was a political manoeuvre to fend off the Marxists who were rising in power. In the US, pensions grew out of the Civil War. The government felt an obligation to provide pensions to war widows and to injured soldiers. But pensions also grew with the rise of America's first corporations, the railroads. And they began not because the individuals who ran the railroads were incredibly generous people. They needed people to stay in the job. That's Roger Lowenstein, a journalist and the author of While America Aged, among other books. Life was uh, precarious in the 19th century. Employment was precarious. And this is a way of saying, if you stay in the job, we'll actually take care of you when you're old, which was, you know, a remarkable thing. When public localities like police, fire and teachers began to take care of their own, they did so for the same reasons as the railroads. They wanted to attract people to the vocations they provided. A defined benefit is wonderful, as long as the math adds up. Unfortunately, recent history is littered with instances in which the government or corporations weren't quite as precise in their math as Webster and Wallace. The clergyman's brilliance wasn't the idea itself, but the math behind it. Using breakthroughs in the fields of statistics and probabilities, Webster and Wallace were remarkably accurate. In 1744, they projected that by 1765, they'd have capital totaling 
£348. 21 years later, they were just £1 off. But the math behind pension funds got very fuzzy, and that fuzzy math produced disastrous results. Most notably in the early 1960s, when the car company Studebaker became a poster child of failed pension promises. It was unable to live up to its obligations, and workers saw their plans go up in smoke. Other corporations struggled to meet their obligations too. Many, like General Electric, decided that pensions were just too costly. They didn't want the burden. Pensions define the benefit, and the employer is on the hook for any shortfall. Companies didn't want that. So um, some of them went bankrupt and failed, and others so-called froze their pensions, which means that they stopped adding to the benefit each year. New employees didn't get benefits. Beginning in the 1970s, companies had a new option to offer employees, 401k plans. And this started a fundamental shift in the way Americans save for retirement. 401ks took off as bull market runs in the 80s and 90s pushed their accounts higher and investors had boundless faith in the stock market. But two recessions in the 2000s erased those gains and prompted second thoughts about the 401k as a replacement for the old system of pensions. Retirees have become tasked with managing risks that were previously managed by defined benefit plans. Longevity risk, inflation risk, market risk, interest rate risk, and other variables. Now, as the US has shifted to largely defined contribution, the UK and Europe have remained largely focused on defined benefit schemes. The UK isn't an asset management market, it's a liability management market. UK DB schemes have seen large allocations to liability-driven investment with far lower exposure to equities than perhaps their US counterparts. The notion of the difference between being asset-driven and liability-driven should conjure up an image of a hare and a tortoise. The problem of underfunding facing the American market, a largely public pension issue in the US, is one that's less of an issue in the UK and Europe. Slow and steady has worked out well in the UK and Europe. But that doesn't mean that those plans have been perfect. Far from it. The rate of funding in the US and the UK, for example, does have a marked difference. And I think the uh, potential rates of return being used by US actuaries is far greater than those in the UK. Now, the downside of this is that the growth assets have to work the risk budget much harder. In the prolonged search for yield post the global financial crisis, there's been a transition to alternative markets. With bond yields going down, it's not so easy to meet the long-term obligations that pensions require. And the possibility of zero, even negative rates, means that the search for yield will continue, Howard says. It makes it very difficult. You know, the lower for longer environment continues to make it really challenging for DB schemes to fund those liabilities. They're having to look at different ways of meeting their funding requirement. Some of them that are further away from buying out or with lower funding requirements are beginning to consider private markets and alternatives and other types of assets that have public fixed income characteristics, but offer that additional yield. They're having to be more creative and perhaps source other asset classes that previously they haven't accessed that will allow them to pick up the funding pace appropriately. During the prolonged search for yield post-global financial crisis, there's been a transition to alternative markets, including illiquid assets. In the UK, there's been a recent push into alternative asset classes like real estate and infrastructure. Howard also notes that when it comes to DC schemes, their membership is growing, 
They already have more members than DB schemes, and the actual total market will exceed the DB market within the next 10 years. And like the US, they have investment restrictions on the asset allocation, and so the investment strategies vary significantly from defined benefit schemes. The shift into alternative assets in the UK has, of course, increased risk to pension funds and balance sheets to some degree. That's had a clear impact on the industry. The additional returns required from alternative and private market assets have been sought because of the low-yielding environment in other mainstream asset classes. Some schemes are in a position whereby they need to make up more ground. Others are happy to have more of a barbell approach. And I think it comes back to, in additional to the increased returns from these assets, as an element of diversification. There is an element of accessing broader global markets, which all help with higher rates of return. Howard thinks it's a trade-off. It's something that has proved popular with the more sophisticated funds that have been able to embrace this with their own investment strategy and something that I think a lot of the investment consultants and advisors to the industry have felt comfortable introducing to perhaps smaller schemes to allow them to play in that space and perhaps provide them with more of an equal opportunity in able to access those asset classes that previously they wouldn't have considered. But ultimately, it comes down to using a smaller allocation more aggressively so that the overall risk of the scheme still remains appropriate. There's one big challenge that all retirement systems face. The world is ageing. According to Roger, people used to live 10, 15 years on a pension if they were lucky. But over the last 50 years, life expectancy has risen, while the age at which people retire has pretty much remained the same. People are living in many professions, public professions, a full 30 years on a pension. They're spending as much time on a public pension as they were in their working years, literally. They may go into the police force at 25, retire at 55, and then live to 85. And they have to be supported at close to their last full salary. When you see the fire truck, if you see, say, three firefighters in the fire truck, you're now really paying for six firefighters because there are just as many retirees as ones on the truck. And that becomes a, a whole new conception of retirement. That's obviously a whole new burden for the public sector. It's one thing to say that it's a sunset of life, but now it sort of starts at, you know, 3 p.m. <laughs> so that goes a lot longer. That's a lot more expensive. And there's something else going on. Birth rates are dropping too. Here's Antonio. They are getting very low. So we started with a pyramid where the younger were very broad. Now this is going to change. It's, it's in the process to change. So this is one of the main vulnerabilities in, in the pension world right now, that the contributors to the pensions are getting smaller and the ones who are going to get a pension are growing. So what does this mean for the structure of retirement plans? I'd say simply, it means they need more flexibility. There needs to be more phasing of retirement, both in terms of personal circumstances and of the plans themselves. Acknowledging that you might have to use other assets, the use of tax-friendly instruments, and greater use of multi-employer frameworks and master trusts. And all of this, I think, will lead to greater financial education and awareness, which is something that is being addressed in the UK at the moment. And I think that will lead to 
a joint acceptance of responsibility and alignment between the state, employers and individuals. When it comes to the current state of retirement systems, there's a lot of talk about the issues and problems facing them. It can be a lot of doom and gloom. But let's not forget, pensions do a lot of good and create some pretty interesting opportunities. I mean, think of all the good it did for the Scottish widows. One of the things that a pension does to the psychology of a citizen is it gives them a sense of security. And pensions can invigorate the economy too, because they change spending habits. So in the lack of the pension uh, funds, we could think that there would be like uh, less of the consumptions when they are young, because they would think that I'm going to earn this amount of dollars and I need to expand all of them over the time that I expect to live. Yes, there's a lot of money that has to go into a pension fund in order for it to survive and thrive. And yes, that does take money away from other parts of the economy. But spending by younger people, because they feel secure, offsets that effect. The money doesn't go away. And if you pay retirees money, they're going to spend it in the economy too. It's not like it just vanishes into thin air like a ghost at Greyfriars Kirk. What a pension is doing, it gives some chance to the elderly to keep their consumption. So from a certain point of view, this is also good for the economy as a whole. They can also help address big problems like inequality. Inequality has been exacerbated in the US because of the shift to 401ks and individual retirement accounts. The United Kingdom took a step in trying to fix inequality in retirement systems in 2008. It now requires every employer to enrol staff in a workplace retirement account and contribute towards it. Workers are auto-enrolled. Even if you only employ one person, currently all UK employees over the age of 22 and earning more than £10,000 per annum have to be auto-enrolled by their employer. It's the classic nudge framework. Opting out is an option, but opt-out rates currently are about 10%. It provides a fair, transparent and cost-effective framework for younger people to enter into the pension scheme at an appropriate age. And this allows all of their employers to provide a consistent framework and a consistent pension plan. The administration and the governance aspects is one less headache for them to consider and it's kind of taken care for them. Having a sturdy framework is becoming important because the workforce is becoming increasingly transient. I mean, the idea of staying at a company for 10 years is now as old-fashioned as a Studebaker. To keep up with the times, Howard says countries can look at a place like Norway, whose pension funds are unusually forward-thinking in the way they invest. They have, for example, gone all in on ESG investing, which we covered in our last episode. The one area where they were massively different and at the forefront of developments is in the field of ESG and sustainability and climate change. And that's something that is probably the first thing they consider when they're, when they're looking at the investment landscape. One Norwegian fund recently announced that it was divesting from 27 companies, including big gas and oil companies, as part of its commitment to combating climate change. And changes to regulations have allowed them to invest more in private and alternative assets. They have set up industry-related schemes or large industry employer schemes with lots of affiliations that uh, use centralised governance, centralised administration and large, sophisticated, experienced internal investment teams, which at the end of the day are bringing costs down, providing much more efficient administration and regulation and delivering, on the whole, excellent investment returns. Other countries could learn from Norway beginning with their approach to ESG. 
From a UK point of view, it must be incorporated in both DB and DC schemes. This means that allocations to new strategies, whether it be green equities or low-carbon passive funds, green bonds or new sub-asset classes like affordable housing, are becoming much more relevant and flavours of the day. Pension scheme investors and investment consultants are now increasingly asking if existing funds will be classified under the new sustainable finance disclosure regulations, which is something PGM as a manager has to consider and implement. Roger says we're still waiting to see how exactly a global pandemic has affected things. We'll know how uh, COVID affected public pension plans better in the coming months as we see uh, year-end numbers. But I would say better or not as badly as feared. In the beginning, I think there was a fear that there was going to be mass bankruptcies at the public sector. We obviously uh, haven't had that. But COVID's broad impact is becoming clear. It's changing not just the way we work, but also how we approach work. Already, we're seeing more and more people not only working remotely, but changing jobs entirely. And that has huge implications for retirement savings. I don't see momentum to restart the private pension system, given that employees in the private sector jump around so much. So the government more and more, I think, will become the uh, social guarantor. Roger believes that pensions will have to move in the direction that healthcare has moved with the Affordable Care Act, the beginning of a government guarantee. And a world in which employees don't stay at the same employer for long periods of time, certainly for their whole career, there's really no reason to center healthcare or pensions in a private employer. So I, I think we're moving more and more towards the government, state, local, and federal. The same onus is on the government to keep them well-funded. The government, Roger says, should have a hand in this, whether it be the federal government, keeping social security strong, or local and state governments, doing a better job of putting away assets. The federal government should start to make it expensive for the many, many public funds that are not in trouble now, should make it expensive for them to fall into trouble, should put pressure on them to keep honest books and to keep their pensions funded because ultimately the federal government is going to wind up uh, holding the bag. The challenges facing global pension funds and pension funds in the UK are also considerable, but addressable. In the UK over the next 10 years, it will emerge that a large proportion of retirees will not have sufficient pension provision. I think the industry is going to need to be more innovative for funds that are appropriate to the decumulation phase, and that's the decumulation phase of DC pension plans, to allow members to receive pensions while still being invested in appropriate levels of risk. I think there'll be a continued focus on plan costs and greater transparency, as well as more financial education, which is a key initiative in the UK at the moment, to ensure greater take-up and alignment of outcomes in respect of pensions longer term. Looking ahead to the future of retirement systems globally and in the UK, Howard sees a larger shift to DC. And with that shift must come a change of thinking, more flexibility, innovation, and awareness. I think it's a combination of trust in the system, trust in the frameworks that do exist, but we all need to take more personal responsibility. Greyfriars Kirkyard, that small parish church in Edinburgh, is still there. In fact, it's become known as the most haunted graveyard in the world, inspiring legends and even a book series about a certain boy wizard. 
Author J.K. Rowling has said that Greyfriars Kirkyard inspired a number of characters in her Harry Potter books, which have sold 500 million copies and led to eight movies. But it turns out that Greyfriars' most lasting contribution may have actually been to the world of finance, to your retirement account, and to your future. Thanks to P. Jim's Howard Noel, to Roger Lowenstein, and to Antonio Sanchez for talking with us. More episodes of The Outthinking Investor are coming soon. Next, we'll be diving into the topic of sovereign wealth funds. You may associate those with oil-rich Middle Eastern countries, but what if I told you the largest SWF was actually a little north of the Persian Gulf, in Norway? The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM and Bloomberg Media Studios. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MG PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2021. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.